Holy God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering of Christian saints in this church today. We thank you for the opportunity to joyfully render our praise and our honor and our worship to you, the Most High God. Help us to be faithful in all that we've been given, to be stewards over your great creation, and to invest wisely our time, our talent, and our treasure, all to your great glory and to the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Isn't it wonderful how Jesus always provides for us a lesson on stewardship about this time of year? Don't know how it happens. It just so coincides with the church's calendar. Just kidding. We chose this one today, Luke 16. It's one of the most difficult parables to understand in the entire Bible. Don't know why I picked it, but we're going to try and unpack it today. We also chose today uh, some readings from Genesis. And um, here's the great thing about those readings from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God believes that he is the owner of everything that there is. And that's what I wanted you to see today. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know how that goes, right? And a little bit later in the chapter, he said, and let us make man in our image. And so we are created in God's image. And then God began to, to dole out the stuff that he had created. Remember he said, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the, the great plants and the, the trees, they're all yours to manage, to oversee, to steward. So I'm going to ask you this morning, how are you managing the things that God has given you? Time, talent, and treasure. Because God thinks that he owns it all and that he's given a portion back to us to manage to his great glory. How are you managing because today in Luke chapter 16, we get a story about a dishonest manager of money. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at the story that Jesus tells, this very difficult parable, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. Jesus is telling this to his disciples and a group of Pharisees, and it's a parable about giving. Look at verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager. That word is steward. He's a steward or a manager. And charges were brought to him, to the rich man, that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions. He wasn't a very good steward. So you got a healthy, wealthy landowner, and uh, oikonomon is the Greek word, which means a ruler of the house. And so this guy is a steward. You might want to think of a CFO, a chief financial officer, but he's got wealth that is not his. He is simply managing it. So every investment, every administrative move in the household is governed and overseen by this manager. Sounds like God, who's the wealthy homeowner and the manager who is us, right? Look at verse 2. There's trouble brewing, though. The boss calls him in one day and says, What is this I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Adios, sayonara, goodbye, hands him the pink slip, you're done. And in verse 3, he's clearly upset by this news. Look at this. What shall I do then? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Wow. He doesn't have a job, but he complains that he doesn't like calluses and blue-collar work. That's not good. And he complains that he's too prideful to beg, so he thinks that's kind of tacky. So what's he going to do? 
The question might be, though, how did he get in this position in the first place? How did he get to a place where he lost his management, where he doesn't have anywhere else to go, where he doesn't have any friends? Most scholars believe that he had been swindling everybody out of their money. In fact, he was charging what the wealthy landowner wanted, his, his fee, and putting a fee on top of that and keeping it for himself. That's why he was dishonest. He was cheating people out of extra money. So at this point, he has no friends. Look at verse 4. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He doesn't have any friends. There's nobody going to take care of him. He's got no safety net. So what does he begin to do? Look at verses 5 to 7. He brings in all the debtors from the master's debts and starts to write their bills off. Oh, you owe 100? I'm only going to charge you 80. Oh, oh, you owe 50? I'll charge you 25. Deep discounts, taking off huge chunks of debt. Now you might think, well, if you're the master of the house, that's really going to make me angry. I'm losing money in this. Tim Keller believes that the reason the landowner, the master, is not upset is this steward, this manager, is actually writing off his cut, his cut. So he's sacrificing his money in order to make friends. Look at verse 8. The master commended this dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for his cleverness, for his ways of now strategically investing in people so that when he loses his job, he'll have a community around him. You see? It took him to the nth hour to stop investing on him, in, in himself in frivolous ways and to start investing in people. Now, I think that's what Jesus wants us to see, to invest in things that are eternal, things that will last beyond this life, like friends. This steward realizes that friends are more important than money, that money is short-lived and friendships live on forever. My money in my pocket right now is less important than my relationships that I'm building for the future. And I'd call that pretty shrewd, pretty clever, smart guy. Look at verse 8. Here's where Jesus steps on all of our toes. He says, for the sons of this world, meaning the shrewd manager who doesn't seem to know God at all, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than sometimes the sons of light. Who are the sons of light? Sons of light are believers who have God in their lives. Jesus is saying, sometimes the people out there are more wise and shrewd and clever in their investments than we are as believers. People can make a kingdom impact by loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. People who can invest in eternal things like the local church that bears the gospel of salvation to a sinful and darkened world. Jesus is saying sometimes those secular people invest more wisely than we do. Ouch, that hurts. I tell you, Jesus says in verse 9, make friends by means of your unrighteous wealth so that when it fails you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Invest in eternity, Jesus is saying. So this difficult parable wants you to gather three things from it. First of all, Christians are merely stewards or managers over God's wealth. Your time, your talent, and your treasure are given to you by God. How are you managing? I started off with that question. How are you managing? Secondly, 
Christians, above all people, since we are the children of light, ought to be investing in eternal things, not frivolous things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And thirdly, your motivation to be a good manager of God's stuff is totally motivated by love, by love. So those three things, we're managers over God's stuff. And I know that many of us fall into that trap of believing that we're self-made people. I made this wealth, and here the church is wanting me to give it to, to them and separate me from my wealth. And some people believe that you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. Or maybe you've got that song in your head by Donna Summer from 1983, I work hard for my money. So hard for it, honey. I'm a self-made Christian. Let me just ask you as a steward, who knit you together in your mother's womb, wonderfully and marvelously made? Who is it that gave you the intellect to go to college or trade school and to have the job that you enjoy right now? Who is it that causes the synapses in your brain to fire in such a way that you tell your muscles to move and the fibers just jump and move at your every command? God, 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 God. Everything that we have is given to us as a gift from God. Every bit of money we had, he made it possible. And it ought to be our joy to give back a worshipful portion of what he's given to us. 1 Chronicles 29, 14. I love King David in this, this First Chronicles. He says, but who am I and who are these my people that we should be able to offer to you willingly from all that you've given us? We get to offer willingly as a sacrifice and a thanksgiving. And then the second part of 29, 14, he says, for all things come of you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. It's all God's in the first place. And it is our joy to give back to God a portion of what we've been given as stewards, as managers of his great wealth. In Malachi chapter 3, we're told that the kind of the baseline for Christian giving is the tithe. And I know that people don't really understand the tithe. It's an old English word. Literally means 10%. We give back to God a portion of what we've been given. Now, people say, well, that's a lot of money. I don't know that I can make it to the tithe. Imagine managing a wealthy landowner's estate, and at the end of the year, he says, you can keep 90% of what you've been managing this year. Give me back just 10% of all that I've given you. Wouldn't that be a great deal? It'd be fantastic. And that's what God says. You're a steward, a manager. You get to keep 90%. Just give me 10 and make that come from the heart that you actually believe that all things come of you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. Secondly, invest in things that endure, that are eternal. Remember, Jesus says, do not invest in treasures on earth where dust and rust and moth can get to them and thieves break in and steal, but invest in those things that are eternal. Invest in friendships, he says. No material thing that you own is going to last. It's going to fall apart. It will not bring you joy. As the old joke goes, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Just doesn't happen. So think of it this way, investing in things eternal. If you buy a new iPhone 11 for the same price that you paid for that phone, you can support a priest doing gospel work in the bush country of Kenya 
for an entire year. For an entire year. Think about how many souls are saved from damnation and brought into the kingdom of light through one man's preaching. You can either buy a cell phone that's going to wear out, you're going to have to exchange it in two years, or you can invest in kingdom movement through a priest in Africa. Jesus is saying invest in the things that matter. Invest in the things that matter. Uh, Thirdly, love has to be your motivating factor. There's no other way. Jesus is not here to coerce you or strong arm you or shake you down in this parable. He's saying, let the love of God and the love of neighbor be your motivating factor. And here's what he ends the parable with, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is saying, check your heart. Do you love God? Do you love money? Are you investing in things eternal or investing in things of this world? You must decide for yourself if God is the owner of all things and we are simply managers or stewards, will we love God with our time, our talent, and our treasure? Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, we will be great managers over what you've given us. Not like this dishonest steward who cheated people and finally learned that he's got to have community. He's got to have people. He's got to have relationships. So help us as children of light to invest in you because we love our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And to invest in our neighbors whom we are called to love as ourselves. Help us to do this, dear Lord. Not begrudgingly, but willingly, joyfully, and with great generosity in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Is Bob Armstrong here? Yeah, there's Bob. Um, Bob's going to complete this uh, little teaching on management and stewardship and tell us a little bit about why he feels passionate about that. Thank you, Bob. Good morning. So how has giving impacted your spiritual development? This was the question that Tripp asked me to talk about. And it put me on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, we have Jesus telling us in Matthew 6, do not do your righteousness before men, or you won't receive the right reward from it. But then we have Paul in Philippians 3 saying, let me be an example for you and others that you might follow. So in case you have any doubt who wins in a theological argument between Jesus and Paul, I'm going to try and diminish the righteousness Uh, before men. So what I'm talking about is about what has happened in me, but it's not really about me. As a child, I grew up in a non-denominational charismatic church, and I don't think I ever heard the word stewardship. I did hear the word tithe. I knew that there were tithes, and I knew that there were offerings, and I knew that those weren't the same thing, and I knew that there were scriptures that talked about one and scriptures that talked about the other. And because God has a sense of humor, he's given me an organized mind that likes to categorize things and put them into little boxes. In this chaotic world, it must be a good joke for him. So I began to develop rules. Well, this is a tithing situation, or this is an offering situation, and this scripture applies to this, and that scripture applies to that. And I realized in retrospect that was a avoidance technique so that I could pick and choose and not do what I didn't want to do and feel that I was biblically justified in doing that. 
Giving as an obligation isn't really a core spiritual concept. It's not really a biblical concept. Uh, the tithe became a part of Mosaic law in Leviticus, but there are examples of tithing that happened before that. Before it was something that the Israelites were required to do, it was something that they did out of gratitude. So we have Abram, uh, after he wins some battles, he ties to the priest king Melchizedek. And Jacob, when he sees the vision of the ladder coming down from heaven, uh, out of gratitude gives a tithe to the Lord. So those happened before it was a part of law. Jesus came to not abolish the law, but, but to perfect it. And he talked a lot about giving. He talked a lot about generosity. In fact, uh, this is one of the topics that's most spoken about in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there must be something about money and our relationship to it that's important to God because he talks to us a lot about uh, money's effect on us and how we should uh, overcome that and how we should focus on uh, the source of all good things. So Jesus gives us a parable of three servants who work for a master. The master gives them some investments. He charges them to go out and make these things profitable and bring back the profit to the master. And the first two do just that. They go out, they make very shrewd investments. They're careful managers, they're careful stewards. They bring back a great bounteous increase. The third servant, well, he's bitter. He's a little bit hostile towards his master. He says, you know, he really doesn't earn any of this. I'm the one doing all the work. Why should I have to give him anything? In case you aren't familiar with this parable, I'm going to give you a spoiler warning. Doesn't turn out really good for the third servant. I don't think Jesus gave us this to shame us or to frighten us. I think he was illustrating a broader principle. So just as Father Tripp said, these talents that we have, where do they come from? These skills these jobs, these uh, positions that we hold, are they strictly from ourselves? Are we self-made men pulled up from our bootstraps? Well, I'd like to look back in Exodus 35 at the passage where they talk about putting together the tabernacle, which was to be the dwelling place of God until Solomon built the temple. So this was the, the prime worship center for the Israelites. And Moses introduces us to two fellows Bezalel and Aholiab. So any expectant parents out there that are thinking of names for your kids? Might want to give it a thought. Maybe it's a middle name, you know. Um, so what we learn about Bezalel and Aholiab, God has filled them with his spirit, with skill, ability, and knowledge, and all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiders in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers. So these are useful survival skills if you're wandering around in the desert for 40 years. I wonder if Bezalel and Aholiab wondered, God, why did you give me these talents? Why couldn't I be uh, someone who can, you know, sew a tent and keep the sunlight off of me or something like that? They had no idea why God had given them the abilities that they had. How do they develop this skill? Well, some of it was practice, experience, some of it was hard work, but we know from the text it was God who gave them these skills and gave them these abilities. So he put the talents with them and then he asked them to invest them and use them for the glory of God, which ultimately they did. So we can see that giving is rooted in the scripture. It's something that's, that's always with us uh, throughout the word. 
Uh, and we're called to sow. We're called to sow these talents, just as Bezalel and Aholiab sowed their talents to glorify the tabernacle. Uh, we're called to support various ministries in various ways, sometimes with our money, sometimes with our time, with our passion, our energy. So my wife and I support St. Paul's as our home church. We also support St. Albans down at the Citadel, doing good work with the cadets down there. Uh, we give support to an organization called the Acton Institute, which uh, works on the intersection of religious liberty, economics, and freedom. And we support the Fellowship for the Performing Arts, which does uh, theater with a Christian worldview to bring it to uh, an unbelieving world. Those are causes that we feel led to support both with money and with time. We also do volunteer work and are on boards of various uh, organizations and committees, so it's not just a money thing. Uh, it's using all of those talents and abilities that God has given us to give back to him. We're called to cultivate the ministries that we support. Uh, we're not just blindly plugging in, writing checks to them. You have to evaluate the fruitfulness of the ministries. Some of them have completed their mission. Some of them have frankly been poor stewards and don't take care of the assets that are entrusted to them. And I believe we're called to exercise discernment and judge the fruitfulness of the ministries. Sometimes you support things for a period of time and not forever. Finally, how has this caused growth? Going back to Tripp's core question, uh, how has giving affected my, my Christian life? Um, so I want to share two stories about the freedom that comes from giving. Um, I mentioned God has a sense of humor. Uh, another way that he expresses this is uh, he speaks to me in numbers. So some people uh, receive prophetic words or visions, things like that, I get numbers. And when there's a coincidence between numbers, that's usually a good indication God's trying to tell me something. So before we joined St. Paul's, my wife and children attended Summit and she tithed out of the household budget, out of the food and clothing money. That's a pretty poor indictment of where I was spiritually. She was there with the kids. I was at home, probably asleep. And she was giving out of the meager allowance that she had, kind of like the widow's might. And when she received that first annual giving statement from Summit, uh, down to the penny, the amount that she had given over the year matched an unexpected bonus that I had received. Hmm. So there God was speaking to me in a number. I didn't understand what that was, you know, this uh, brought up, um, I actually didn't even know that story until many years later. Um, but God was doing a work in me, uh, one, to get back to church and to attend and to, to be the father that I needed to be for the family, uh, and two, to recognize where the resources came from. So when we had decided uh, to tithe to St. Paul's, that first Sunday I, I wrote out the check and put it in the plate, and then that following Wednesday, I got an unexpected promotion at work. And you want to guess what the amount of the increase <laughs> of my pay was? <laughs> exactly the amount of the tithe. So this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not saying that I gave with the expectation of giving something in return or that God rewards us material for our material giving. That work that has to happen changes in each of us, but it's a spiritual work that happens. It's caused me to realize that the burden is not totally on myself to provide for my family. It's not just my hard work. It's not just uh, my effort that provides, but everything is provided by God. Uh, no additional manna was collected by people working really hard. Mm. It was the Lord's provision and the community that came around them that provided that support. 
So I think that freedom from having to be the sole person that's in charge of things and the sole person responsible for outcomes, when you realize that's just an illusion, God's in charge, and you're just called to be the careful manager and to take care of these resources that he's entrusted to you and to sow them and to evaluate their fruitful use and to grow. That's the joy of stewardship in my life, and I pray that all of you experience the same thing.